Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Greetings and welcome to New Books in History. I am your host, Monica Black, and I am so very pleased today to be talking with Kate Brown, author of Plutopia, Nuclear Families, Atomic Cities, and the Great Soviet and American Plutonium Disasters. This book has just been published with Oxford University Press this year. And Kate Brown teaches at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. I've personally been a fan of her work uh, for some years now, ever since I read her first book, A Biography of No Place, From Ethnic Borderland to Soviet Heartland, which was published by Harvard University Press in 2004. That book won a ton of awards, and rightfully so, and I I uh, have reason to believe, having read her new book, Plutopia, that it may have a uh, similar fate. Uh, one of the things that I've most appreciated about Professor Brown's work is her affection, I would say, for the careworn and lonely places of this world. It's a, and it's an affection that, that I share, uh, and it's one that comes through with particular power in her book, Plutopia. Plutopia examines in tandem two nuclear cities, Richland, Washington, and Ozyorsk, Russia, both of which were built to create plutonium, first for the Second World War effort, but then really for the Cold War and for the nuclear showdown that both societies in many ways saw as practically inevitable, or at least uh, for which they prepared as though it were practically inevitable. Her history, or the history that she tells in Plutopia, often, I would say, uncomfortably juxtaposes and to great analytic effect, in my opinion, People's memories of growing up in these cities of stable, well-educated, state-subsidized consumer affluence and security with the realities of radiation poisoning, chronic illness, catastrophic pollution, and environmental destruction. Plutopia is a fascinating book, and I think you will really appreciate hearing more about it today. Uh, it's a book both of great insight, I think, and of indignation, and rightfully so. It was the kind of book that when you're reading it, or at least I did, uh, as I read it, I made lots of exclamation points with a pencil in the margins. Uh, so, Kate, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show today. We're delighted to talk to you. Hi, Monica. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're just delighted. I wonder if you can. I wonder if we can get things started by just asking you, please, to tell us a little bit about yourself, principally, you know, uh, where you're from, maybe where you did your graduate training and that sort of thing, anything that you think our listeners might be interested in knowing. Uh, well, I grew up in the, um, the Rust Belt of the industrial Midwest, just as it was in the decline. Um, and I've written about that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think I'm interested in modernist wastelands. As you pointed out, I keep returning to places that are careworn and, and semi-abandoned. And, and that's what got me onto this project, too. I, went, I got my PhD at the University of Washington, and, and while I was there in the 1990s, there was a, a lot of news about this Hanford plutonium plant. And I, I only partially took it in. Uh, but then many years later, in 2004, I visited the Chernobyl zone of alienation after I'd written my first book about this territory between Ukraine and Poland that's densely populated with uh, 
Poles and Ukrainians and uh, Jews and Germans and Czechs and Belarusians. And then after about 25 years, only Ukrainians are left. That's how the book, the story of the book goes. And then after another 25 years, no one's left. And it's the Chernobyl zone of alienation. So after I published that book, I, I thought I'd go take a trip to the Chernobyl zone and see what it was like. And I spent a week there in a, in a double wide trailer and it advertised served non-irradiated food. Um, and I wrote an article about being there and I, I published it and an editor called me up and asked me to write a whole book about the Chernobyl uh, disaster as a pivotal moment, moment in history. And, and I thought about it. It was sort of interesting, but, but there were a lot of books about Chernobyl and I started looking around and I realized that there was this place Hanford and then this, Russian equivalent of Hanford, which was the Mayak plutonium plant in the in the uh, Russian Urals near this town of Ozirus, which had produced far more uh, radioactive isotopes that were spilled into the environment than Chernobyl. And I wondered about that because Chernobyl is a household word, but very few people have ever heard of Mayak or even in the United States have heard of Hanford. Right. And... um. I wondered about that, and I, and I started looking into it, and uh, what I learned was really chilling. Um, it, you know, Chernobyl was a sort of a camera-ready disaster. It occurred on, you know, in, in the course of a couple of weeks. It occurred while the cameras were running. We all saw the pictures of the, the helicopters uh, diving into the, the reactor as they as the engines gave out from all the radioactivity and of the of the soldiers soiled and, and radioactive fallout. And that's part of the reason we, we think of, when we think of great nuclear disaster, we think of Chernobyl. Um, but, you know, Hanford and Mayak were behind military installations. And they, uh, the, the tragedy that occurred there, 200 million curies of spilled uh, radioactive isotopes, didn't occur in one day. It occurred over 40 years. Mm. And the thing that really got to me is that, these plutonium disasters were not accidents like Chernobyl and, and then in 2011, Fukushima. Um, but most of these spilled millions of spilled curies occurred as part of the daily operating order. Um, in other words, these were intentional slow motion disasters. And what I found particularly unnerving is that thousands of people worked at these large factories and over four decades, I could find no one in neither the dictatorial Soviet Union or the democratic United States who breathed the word of these slow motion catastrophes until the 1980s. So that was a major question of my book. How did that happen? How yeah. did so many people fail to say what was going on? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that comes through the book in such interesting ways because um, I mean, just at a, at a very at a at the level of of ordinary life for the people who were living there and in the shadow of of these um, factories, essentially, uh, the way that they mm, I don't know. It's so interesting psychologically the way that one of the things I found fascinating about the book was the way that the people who were um, most affected by it in some cases, I mean, really tragically affected by it. Some of those people were, in, were angry about what had happened, but lots of people were angry about the people who were angry. So I thought, <laughs> yeah, you know, I found that really interesting. Yeah, well, the reason I call the, the book Plutopia, uh, and that's a sort of a word I've coined, is that it was um, a sort of plutopi- plutonium utopia, in that 
they they didn't just build these massive factories that take up about the size of I don't know half a county, but they built next to them prosperous model cities that were exclusively for the plutonium plant operators and their families. And in these model cities, these working class factory workers were paid and lived like the professional middle classes. You know, their, their kids went to excellent schools that were taught by PhDs and they had great medical care and wonderful theaters and parks and well-equipped stores and they got paid a lot. And so these communities created sort of a mirage of well-being and safety, of security, even though they were sitting there right next to a, a dangerous plutonium plant that could blow up or be attacked by the enemy, even though they worked in very dangerous circumstances. So it was this, this uh, sort of urban creation that was very new on both the American landscape, it, it later become, became the post-war American suburb. If you go to Richland today, you'll say, oh, this isn't very exceptional. It looks like Lakewood, California or Glen Ellen, Illinois or lots of other post-war suburbs. But it was created during the war, and that was what was so exceptional about it. It became so much a model that we, we no longer see it as very special. Um, and same with in the Soviet Union. They had been planning for a long time to build special kinds of socialist cities that would reflect socialist values. Hmm. Um, and they called, this a social, they called them socialist cities. And they had a lot of socialist cities on paper, but they had never actually built one until they had all this extra money coming in from uh, the nuclear um, military installations, which, which were, had, were so expensive that it was pretty easy to funnel off money for beautiful apartment buildings, nice theaters, shops, extra supplies for workers who normally in the Soviet 50s went hungry um, in the provinces. Yes. So these places, the greatest fear I found among workers was not fear of being contaminated not fear of having kids who had genetic abnormalities, but the fear of being kicked out of these special plutopia. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just fascinating. It really is. Um, I wonder if you could tell us maybe a little bit, just so readers have a sense of, because what you do here, as I said, as I said at the outset, is you're telling a kind of two parallel stories uh, that have a tremendous amount to do with one another, even though the people who were involved in them, I mean, certainly... The Americans um, working on producing plutonium, plutonium and the Soviets working on producing plutonium knew that they were locked in a sort of um, strange uh, relationship with one another. But I don't think either side, as your book demonstrates, uh, suspected how closely intertwined their fates, in fact, were and how similarly the, the histories of both of these plutopias uh, actually unfolded. So I wonder if you could maybe tell us about the story that you tell in the book, how you tell a parallel story of a Soviet and an American city, and uh, and and sort of the the narrative, the narrative that 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 uh, unfolds in the book. Well, um, I, I I don't call it a, a a comparative history. I call it a tandem history because I think these two places are very much locked together, as you pointed out, um, bound together by the arms race, bound together by international espionage um, and other um, sort of races that were going on, a race to have the highest standard of living, a race to consume um, the most modern goods and services. Um, 
So these are what bind these communities together. In fact, in, in Azores, they used to say, if you dug a hole straight through the earth and you came up on the other side, you'd end up in Richland. So I sort of pictured the two places as two cities uh, connected on an axis, rotating around each other, very much really in touch with one another, so that uh, the Americans produce the bomb, start to produce the bomb and, and, and break ground in Richland uh, for this new Hanford plutonium plant, the Soviets know about it almost as the first bulldozers are moving in, mm. thanks to espionage. Um, once the, the bomb goes off in Hiroshima, August of 1945, a couple weeks later, Stalin gives the, um, the command to go full speed ahead and build a Soviet bomb. Even though in the post-war devastation, in the Soviet Union in 1945, they had no business and no money and no wealth uh, no materials to build a bomb. They, they insisted on doing it because they were so nervous that the Americans were going to drop the next bomb on them. And they, they got a hold of an Air Force, U.S. Air Force bombing map that included 50 Soviet cities as potential nuclear bomb targets. So they described their bomb as a nuclear shield against American aggression. Um, and then the story goes on. The Soviets test the first bomb in 1949, uh, August of 1949. By November of 1949, the Americans are um, doing a very dangerous experiment of running, producing with green fuel. That's, that's fuel that has not been held underwater long enough for the most potent, short-lived radioactive, radioactive isotopes to decay, like iodine-131. Um, and they put this stuff up into the air. They, they, they send it out, over the, out of the stacks to see how far it goes. And they do that as an experiment to see, because I guess it's the Soviets were in a rush and were make, producing with green fuel as well. Um, and so they do that to see how far the Soviet fuel would go in the atmosphere so they could be able to trace Soviet production. Um, this radioactive fuel uh, goes up the stacks and goes right to Spokane and Walla Walla and um, is, is a... You know, it, was a, it was called the Green Run, and it was a really horrible experiment um, that probably had pretty devastating effects for the downwind community at the time in 1949. So it keeps going like that. Right after 1949, um, the, the order goes out to produce yet more bombs and then to produce a hydrogen bomb So in, in the United States. So these two places really are spinning on the same axis. So my problem was, how do you tell the story? How do you tell a tandem history? Uh, most histories, of course, are contained within national boundaries, and they tell the story of a particular place is surrounded by the, the national scale. Since this wasn't a comparative history, but a tandem history, I puzzled over how to exactly tell the story so that you would get that sense of, of the connectedness of the two places. And um, I specifically did not want to compare the two. I thought that would feel both heavy-handed to the reader um, and would sort of force the comparison perhaps too far. So the, the way I, I, I tell the story is it's, um, it's a series of about 45 very short chapters that cut back and forth between the Soviet side and the American side, um, almost like a, you know, a film is edited where you, um, you just adjust, you just switch to the next scene and you sort of seamlessly go on from there. So um, that's how I decided to tell the story, and I guess readers will decide if that's effective or not. Um, but I basically am trying to um, 
use the two stories in a way to tell sort of a bigger story because there are gaps in what the kind of knowledge we can uh, get to in both places. Um, some of the Soviet archives are closed and some of the American archives are closed or material is lost. So it was quite interesting to use both places to tell sort of a fuller, richer story, I thought, than if you had just taken one of the places. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I thought the, I, I, I thought that that was very successful, actually, the way that you used very short chapters. I mean, I like the cinema um, image, too, of sort of switching back and forth between the two stories. But in fact, I mean, sometimes I really felt like the stories were, in fact, so parallel, so similar in many ways that, uh, I, I mean, that's what becomes so striking about it. And, and even that the psychology of people living in, in, the, in, these, uh, in these very interesting places seems to be, um, there seem to be continuities in that kind of psychology across these, you know, what we presume to be um, quite distinctive cultures. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So I, I had a question. This was something that occurred to me uh, and, and that I thought would be very interesting to people to hear about. There's a, there's a kind of social geography that you describe in these plutopias whereby um, there's the there's the sort of there's the plutopia itself, which is this model ideal uh, 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 idyllic sort of setting that you told us about a few minutes ago, and then there's a zone just outside of that where, frankly, as you describe, people um, live who are in some ways consigned to doing the most dangerous work uh, um, that's connected to the plutonium process uh, or the production process. And you use the term zone of immunity to describe something uh, very particular about the social geography of these regions. I wonder if you could talk about that idea of zone of immunity and the way that that idea contributed to kind of really um, extraordinary forms of, 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 uh, of pollution and, and, and all sorts of other, uh, you know, less than happy things. Right. Well, the, the way I see it, there were... Uh, three basic zones in these sort of big nuclear complexes. There's the Plutopian city, uh, which is a residential area for plant operators, regular employees, and their families. And these are consumer-oriented, child-centered places. And um, they're in an epidemiological accounting, they're healthy pink places. The average age, because of all the kids, is 26. People in these towns have universal health care. Everybody, uh, every family has an, someone employed, uh, has a breadwinner. Um, only male breadwinners could win a place, a house in, in Richland, for instance, so uh, there was no unemployment. There was basically no elderly, since everybody hired at the plant was you know younger than 50, and um, there was the towns weren't old enough to have, you know, grandparents around, and um, there's no poverty because everybody's employed. So what you have is what epidemiologists call a healthy worker syndrome. Um, since people are cared for well, people are living well, they appear uh, to be very healthy, and statistically, they're very healthy. So that was the Plutonian city, and and they really are used and they're studied. Um, and shown as a sign of the health of the nuclear industry in general, in both countries. Um, outside of these, next to the, you know, usually about 30 miles away, is the, the, the nuclear zone, the zone of production. And in that zone of production, you have to have a pass to enter. They're guarded, they're fenced off. 
You need to be a worker. And if you're a worker, you can only go to the place where you work and no other place within the large factory complex. Um, the zone of immunity occurs in that industrial zone. These places are guarded by the military. Um, they're guarded also by internal security services like the KGB in Russia and the FBI in the United States. And um, plant managers really can sort of do as they wish with inside these zones. Um, if there's an accident, and I, and I find reports like this, in, for instance, in the Hanford site, they say, well, we'll, we'll, make that, uh, we'll keep that one off the record. Um, if there's um, times when there's something broken and a lot of uh, waste is spilling, say, into the Columbia River or into the Ticha River, that too can go unrecorded. There's no larger body, regulatory body, checking up on these places. So that's the zone of immunity that allows for a lot of um, radioactive waste to go into the environment and a lot of accidents to go unrecorded. Now, who's going to take care of this spilling waste? Who's going to bury it? Who's going to funnel into safer places? Who's going to clean up after the accidents? So something called liquidate the accidents. There's a third zone that I describe in my book, and those are zones where temporary migrant workers live. In the Soviet case, these are gulag prisoners and uh, conscripts and army building brigades. Uh, they're also exiled people who are living in this uh, Urals territory. In the American case, these are uh, migrant, te- you know, temporary migrant workers. At first, they're also prisoners there until 1947. And then afterwards, they're migrant workers who tend to be minorities, African-Americans and Mexican-Americans. Um, until the 50s, no one other than white people live in Richland. Finally, the NAACP uh, gets involved, and they do hire a few African-American workers. Um, but there's a token quality always to Richland's uh, minority population. Um, so these minority workers in the United States and prisoners and soldiers in Russia are temporary. They're sent in to do construction work. These plants are always building more and more uh, reactors and chemical processing plants. Somebody has to do this outside work on contaminated ground under contaminated plumes. And these are construction workers who do it, uh, who are, as they say, temporary. And then also they go in and they clean up spills, um, there's, a, for instance, a, a cooling basin that holds uh, chemically toxic and radioactive water next to um, one of the reactors at, in, in Richland. Some uh, groundhogs undermine that basin. It spills out. You know, all this water is pouring towards the Columbia River. Who's going to clean that up? There's, that's going to be temporary contractors. Now, the value of these temporary workers is that they work for a couple of months, maybe a couple of years, and then they move on and they take with them any injected, ingested radioactive isotopes and any epidemiological trace they might um, have left had they been living, say, in a town like Richland or a town like Azurs. And so that's very useful. There's probably the Soviets counted up about 100,000 uh, gulag prisoners who came through the plant and did this kind of work and moved on. The Americans um, also really don't have an accounting. I mean, they have almost no accounting at all of the construction workers who filed through, of the temporary workers who filed through. 
So when they when they talk about measurements of um, illness among plant workers, of people who worked at the plant, they're really only talking about regular employees. They they the people who did the most dangerous work were not monitored, and their exposures are wholly off the record. We'll never recover that now. So that was very useful in making an argument that these plants were were uh, safe and that the workers were relatively healthy. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I wonder if um, if we could just – I wonder if at this point we could sort of shift the conversation just slightly. I mean, I think that it will still be um, – uh, there's still a lot of things to talk about in this book, and I, but I, I wanted to make sure not to forget to ask you about your really interesting research because it's not – you know, it's not every historian who has the um, – well, I don't know – has the opportunity, you might say, or or has the, the the impulse to actually go and visit the places where she's working and interview people, and and of course those of us uh, or those historians who work on the more distant past don't have that luxury. But for those of us who work in on you know topics related to the 20th century, it's not always uh, every historian that will will journey to distant places and, and interview people. And I wanted to ask you about both your archival research um, because you conducted as you spoke about a few minutes ago, you conducted archival research in both countries, but also what it was like to conduct these interviews, because as we were, you know, as we've kind of mentioned a few times during the interview, I'm not everyone that uh, not everyone is, you know, necessarily delighted to hear about someone writing a book on this subject. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit what that was like to interview subjects and, and what kinds of people you met. Yeah. Um, well, first, the archival research was was really made possible by the fact that after Chernobyl in 1986, a lot of people who had been nervous and suspicious about the military nuclear installations in their backyard were galvanized to take some action um, just before Chernobyl. And, and, and certainly they got a boost right after Chernobyl. So the um, U.S. Department of Energy released uh, tens of thousands of pages of documents right in March of 1986 to um, activists who had been saying, you know, tell us about this Hanford plant, what's been going on here. Um, as the Soviet Union was falling apart in the late 1980s, same kind of activists in Russia living in um, the, the city of Chelyabinsk, which is near the, the Mayak plant in the Urals, made the same kind of case and said, we want to know about this Mayak plant. We want to know what kind of record of contamination it has left behind. And so they got the sort of new Russian government to release documents and and to open up archives in general. And so I was immensely um, grateful to these, to these early activists because that meant that I had this archival trail I could follow. Um, and I, so I worked in the archives in Chelyabinsk. The party archives are, are in the city of Chelyabinsk for this closed city of Azorsk. And then I worked um, in Washington, D.C., where I live, and also in Richland in the Department of Energy and former Atomic Energy Commission archives. And some of those archives are, on, are online very helpfully as well. Now, I could never enter the city of Azorsk because it's a, it still is a closed city. Uh, there's a gate around it. People need a pass to get into it. And in the sort of growing spy mania and, and really anti-American sentiment that's that's um, been occurring in Russia recently, try as I might, I could not get a pass to enter Azores. Mm. So what I did, it sort of, you know, it sort of reads like a, a cheap um, spy novel. I, I got a little cabin in a village outside of the closed city, 
And then I had my contact inside the closed city. Uh, she would call me, you know, and I had like, I, you know, I had a well. I, I didn't have running water and I didn't have a normal, um, you know, heating or anything like that. But I did have a modern cell phone. And so she would call me and say, I'm sending one out to you. Uh, by cab, meet at this, you know, third party, this location. We had to meet at a neutral location because the person who owned the little cabin where I was staying did not want these kinds of interviews to go on Mm -hmm. in their house. So we would meet at this third party location. And sometimes she would say, this one is so nervous, I told her you were Estonian. (laughs) Some people met me when they found out I was American. They turned around and laughed. Mm. Because they had, you know, older people in all their lives, every year they had signed oaths that said that they would not give away secrets to the enemy, and that enemy was usually Americans. Um, but I did find people who were willing to tell their story, and these tended to be women, older women, and they tended to be angry about um, medical problems in their families and the lack, what they felt was a lack of compensation um, for it, coming from the Russian government. In the in Richland, it was also sort of a little bit dicey. People were um, locals can be very proud of the Hanford legacy, proud of um, their parents and grandparents who worked in the plant, proud of their own record of working in the plant. And so, um, once I was disinvited to a dinner party when somebody found out that I was working on this book. Um, other times, people would um, talk to me just briefly, but um, didn't really want to say much. But again, I found that the people who were most forthcoming and most interested in talking to me were those who were interested in telling the story, uh, what is called the downwinder story of of people who themselves and their families, they feel have been made sick from radioactive isotopes coming from the plant. So my my stories are biased that way, my oral interviews. I mean, I did talk to plant engineers and to doctors and things like that, but a lot of the people who um, gave me the richest interviews were these people who were upset about uh, the shouldering this radiogenic um, legacy of these plants. And so uh, I thought about that. You know, I, I, I didn't mean to write about the public health issues. I, was, I really started the story because I was interested in the, the pioneers of the nuclear security state, the people who were first willing to um, hold their arms up for a pat down and put their children through full body scanners and place their urine samples on the front porch every morning. <laughs> I thought these were the, the pioneers to the, to the modern security states in which we all live now. Mm. And I thought that was interesting. And that was my major point of concern. But as I was asking people about security this and security that, they kept telling me about their, their kids who have genetic abnormalities or the, their own heart problems or their own problems with cancer or other autoimmune disorders and at first, I wasn't interested in these stories, but my interview subjects really dragged me, kind of kicking, <laughs> screaming towards this public health story. And I asked other historians who'd worked on these places, and they said, oh, yeah, I didn't want to deal with the public health problems because it's too controversial and too confusing. And I realized what their point was when I started reading the medical reports myself. They were... Um, there's lots of reports about experiments on, on lab mice and on beagles... There was lots of reports about um, monitoring le- you know, levels of radio, of certain radioactive isotopes at certain points at certain times. Um, but there was no real story uh, that answered my question about what it meant. Should I keep going? Yes, Kate, sorry. What it meant to live with long-term low doses 
of radioactive isotopes in one's surrounding environment. Those questions really had not been asked, especially on the American side. Although a great deal of money was spent on, on research, medical research, starting in the 1960s, um, a lot of the medical studies were designed to serve up no real answers to these critical questions. I even went to the, um, the, the former director of the National Cancer Institute here in Washington, D.C., and I said, why were there no studies on, on radiation and cancer in all these years? And he said, oh, well, to have done that, would have, any scientist who would broach that question would have been to, for him to have gone political, and no scientist wants to go political. So there are all kinds of medical questions that were not answered. And among the medical studies that came up, usually from independent parties, it said um, people living along the Columbia River have higher rates of cancer. Or um, my, uh, there, there's been a spike in infant mortality or these kinds of things. They were always met with a, a, a welter of, of answering studies that canceled out the first scientist's opinion. So you would be left with a draw. And you'd be left confused in this sort of, um, you know, no ability to no ability to say anything for certain. And I think this was a certain. I finally decided that there was a a kind of planned ambiguity built into this process. That if people were left doubting or unable to say for sure whether these plants caused health problems or not, then the the story would die out in the controversy. And um, so I didn't want to write my book in which I just repeated those controversies, you know, and put the, the opinion of experts against the opinion of farmers and say the farmers say they're sick, but the experts say they're not sick. Right. Uh, if I do that, if I, if I do that sort of standard journalist objectivity, then the reader would have to conclude that the scientists are probably right since they're experts and they're supposedly disinterested. Um, so what I tried to do was determine what they knew about radiation and health and when they knew it and then what they forgot over time and what, and the questions they failed to answer and the medical studies that were and the, and the autopsies that were, um, ordered to be destroyed. And when I started following that sort of historicist line of uh, questioning, I found a lot of really interesting Evidence to show that um, that they knew a great deal in the 1940s about uh, radioactivity and human health. That they're extremely nervous about it when they were opening these plants, and that um, gradually the the shift went from concerns about public health to concerns about public relations. And that the in the American side, the danger and the threat became no longer radioactive isotopes but the danger of public hysteria mm. about people who start to panic and refuse to make plutonium any longer. And then that was the real security concern, that national defense would be in jeopardy if people started to panic too much. And so panic became the chief threat. And they use these words, threats, dangers, exposure, public exposure, not exposure to radiation in the American sense. So I found strangely that... This, that there were some certain uses of a closed society like the Soviet Union, that Soviet doctors could ask more open-ended questions about the effect of long-term exposure to low doses of radiation because they didn't have to worry about public exposure. 
They didn't have to worry about an independent media getting a hold of the story and going crazy with it. And so what we have on the Soviet side is uh, a lot of people living along a, 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 a river that became extremely radioactive once they dumped in 3.2 million curies of high-level radioactive waste into the river from 1949 to 1951. And people living along that river drank from it, swam in it, ate the fish from it, uh, cooked with that water, and ingested a great deal of radioactive isotopes. And Soviet, uh, they eventually moved most of the people living along that river, but they left a couple of large villages. And they started to study these people, uh, showing up annually, taking blood tests, um, running the kids, especially through a battery of, of, of tests, and recording uh, these people's medical records, and then treating these people medically in a special clinic in Chelyabins, which the people from the village went to, and then recording the kinds of illnesses they came up with. Um, and what the Soviets diagnosed, created, was a diagnosis that so far only exists in the Russian Urals, and that's chronic radiation syndrome. And that is a, a whole host of uh, symptoms that include a loss of appetite, chronic fatigue, intense pain in joints, uh, intense anemia, lung ailments, weakened immune systems, um, weaken circulatory and digestive tract systems, and um, eventually leading to um, cancers. But that these other ailments that come before um, long precede cancer and could possibly kill a person before a cancer does. Um, and this they call chronic radiation syndrome. And, and what I found was really interesting in doing a tandem history is that I, as I talked to people, farmers living downwind of the Hanford plant and farmers living downstream from the Mayak plant, that people who had never met each other, never been in communication with each other, kept describing me to me these same symptoms. And the Americans didn't know about chronic radiation syndrome, but they'd say things like, I just, by 2 o'clock, I'm back in bed for the rest of the day. I'm so tired. I have these intense pains in my joints. Um... Of course, thyroid issues were a big problem, but also um, problems with hearts, problems with digestive tracts, and, and severe problems with kids, especially with autoimmune disorders. Mm-hmm. And um, I started to become convinced that there might be something to this chronic radiation syndrome, and that's something that um, does not exist in the American medical lexicon, but perhaps it should be. Mm. That's very it's- that's very interesting and and, uh, and alarming. And I thought when you were talking about this um, particular topic, you know, the public health angle of your book, which is um, which is one of the I have to say one of the most powerful aspects of the book. Well, I remember this. There's a line that you had where you said something like um, that. Particularly, you were talking about American scientists, and you said in the 1950s, American scientists, and maybe you meant you know sort of American. I don't remember if you said it, maybe it was American officialdom generally believed in abstractions. They believed in abstractions like progress and and the, the notion that scientific discovery would inevitably um, eliminate all ills. And, and I, I thought myself at many stages when I was reading your book that, it, you know, that one has a sense of, a, of conspiracy sometimes, you know, that people are just ignoring um, the terrible things that they must know are happening. But then one also gets the feeling that, that, that you're exactly right on that point, that it's not so much about conspiracy. Oftentimes it was about something like, just a belief that things would work out all right, that the science would catch up with the problems, and everything was going to be fine. 
Yeah, that's right. There was a great deal of hubris. Uh, you know, and they did phenomenal things. They created this nuclear bomb. I mean, from the theory of relativity to the creation of the nuclear bomb, it's just a, you know, a, a short amount of time. And there was a sense that human science, 20th century science, could, could really accomplish anything it set out to do. So the big thing that it was sort of left unsolved was what to do with the waste, the radioactive waste. And the Soviets copied the Americans because they knew what the Americans were doing by putting the high-level radioactive waste into, into tanks underground. And that's what humans do with waste. That was not a very new or creative solution to the problem. When humans have something they don't want to deal with, they, they bury it underground, mm. whether it's a corpse or other you know, kinds of waste. It's, it just goes into the ground, and then you don't have to see it or look at it or think about it. So that's what they did. They, made, they created these single-hulled, big tanks, put them underground, the radioactive waste was so uh, toxic and corrosive that um, it, it, and it and it self-boils to over 100 degrees, so they had to keep it cooled, and they had to monitor these tanks because the corrosive qualities of the, of the chemical toxins together with the, uh, the powerful energy from the radioactivity ate right through most metals. Um, and they, so they knew this was a temporary solution. But they kept building these temporary tanks as they filled up with more and more waste. And they invested very little in either the science of waste management or the um, equipment for waste management. In fact, the, the, it was said that the, the engineers and the, and the scientists who were sort of at the lowest level, considered the least promising, they were assigned to waste management. Or it was not a high-prestige kind of field. And I found that they, in the 1950s um, and, and into the early 60s, for instance, in Richland, they invested more in subsidies for the local school district, for the Richland public schools, than they did in waste management every year. I mean, and that's an astounding, considering the complexity of, of waste management, that's an astounding uh, thing to have figured out. And so the, that's the problem, that's the legacy we're left with today. If you've been following the news this summer, uh, there's been an ongoing story of um, these tanks that were meant to be temporary when they were installed in the 1940s and 50s that are leaking now into the groundwater and heading towards the Columbia River. Um, there's about 350 million curies in those underground tanks, and they're trying to figure out what to do with them. Um, in the meantime, they've been building a, a plant to turn this, this sort of peanut butter-like sludge in the tanks into glass blocks, and to hopefully the glass blocks can be stored safely for the necessary 240,000 years. But the, uh, the chief designer of this vitrification plant has gone on record saying that if they put this plant as it's designed now in, into operation, it'll have a hydrogen, ex- hydrogen explosion and spew radioactive waste all over the place. So right now we have a problem that our science and technology cannot solve. Um, and this is um, something that's, um, despite the hubris of 20th century scientists, it's a, a problem that is not going away. And it's a, a vast and immense problem. And the Russians have a very similar story on their side as well. Mm. Can, on another note, um, just with respect to science and, and if coming at it from another direction, I was just, one of the things I wondered about while reading was about the, I wondered how steep the learning curve was for you in terms of informing yourself about the science, or maybe you already had some foreknowledge of it. No, I didn't. 
it was a very daunting project. Um, at first, as I said, I was just interested in the, in the cities themselves, these Plutopia. Um, but then I realized I needed, if I was going to tackle this medical, this public health record, and if I was going to tackle um, that, then I had to look at some of the science and the technology in these plant accidents. And so I had to read a lot of these accident reports and the plant records. And in order to do that, I, I didn't have the science background. And I, and I read a lot of these medical reports, and I, I grew very confused. And so I employed the help of two um, experts in the field. One is a, a retired physicist from my university, UMBC, who happened to have grown up in Richland, mm. Harry Windsor, and he agreed to help me. He, I could uh, send him documents, I could send him reports, and he would read them and help me interpret them and explain concepts to me in great erudite detail. He also mm. has a degree in engineering. And he's an interesting guy because when he started out, when we started out working together, he was a real patriot for the Hanford plant and all that the town of Richland had done for him. And by the end of the project, um, he was he'd gone 180 degrees in the other direction. Uh, he was, uh, and I had to start saying, Harry, I don't think it's really a conspiracy theory. Um, <laughs> and I also worked with uh, Mike Fay, who was a, a, a statistical, um, a biostatistician statistician from um, NIH here in Washington, D.C., and he helped me also read some of these statistical records about, the, about medical health and, and decipher them. Um, then I had a, gradu- a graduate student who is um, a biologist run some census, look through the census records in the 1950s and, and came up with this astounding um, spike in the public health record of infant mortality rates in the counties around, Rich- in Richland itself and the counties around Richland. And, and somehow this is a, a, you know, some statistic that um, nobody else had ever put together, which I was, I found surprising since there's been so much attention on Hanford over the last couple of decades. So I had, a, I had help from, from people who I um, uh, asked to collaborate with me, and I'm very grateful to them for helping me because um, I think part of the problem we run up is, against as historians is we, we come across texts that we cannot read, whether they're in a language we can't read or they're in a technical language we don't understand. Mm. And, um, you know, I've learned to read Ukrainian and Polish and Russian and, and other languages to, to do my research projects, and now I had to learn to read physics and um, biostat records and that kind of thing. And, and there's always people to help you to do that. You, you don't have to do it alone. Yeah, how wonderful to have colleagues that, that um, were so forthcoming with their expertise. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I understand that you have been on a, a, you've been on a book tour for this book. Is that true or have, has it not happened yet? Uh, well, I've given about a dozen talks about the book in the last, you know, six months or so. Yeah. Have they been talks in bookstores? I mean, have they been, in other words, what I'm trying to find out is whether you've given talks to academic audiences largely or if you've given talks to, 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 more, to broader, more public audiences. In Seattle, I gave some talks to um, public audiences, but otherwise they've all been in academic settings. What were the public, uh, what was the public response in Seattle? I was curious about that. Well, yeah, I thought I would get a lot of people who grew up in, in Richland and who were, uh, you know, defenders of the plant and the town. And uh, there was nothing like that. And maybe it was a self-selected audience, but um, person after person stood up and said, yeah, what you said is true, and here's some more stories to add. Mm. Um, and a journalist who was uh, working for King 5, a, a television station in Seattle, had been doing a documentary about these these leaking waste tanks, and he says, it's right, you're absolutely right, the story about censorship is true. I cannot make headway at all in Richland in terms of getting information or getting 
my story told there. Um, so there was all kinds of people who had more to add to the story. It was really very sort of moving and gratifying to give a talk there. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Or I, can, I, I should say I can only imagine. Um, well, uh, Kate Brown, we've talked to you, um, ex- you know, a lot about your book today, and you've been so generous with your time, and I want to I thank you so much for that. Uh, I'm sure lots of people are going to appreciate hearing what you have to say about Plutopias. I wonder if, um, just for those of us who follow your work, including myself, if you'll tell us a little bit about what you're working on now and if it's related to what you've been doing recently or not, um, I, I'm sure people would be interested to know. Well, I have this uh, book manuscript that I'm shopping around. It's called Being There, and it's about the misadventures of a historian, you know, sort of the, the stories about our, our uh, research trips we'd rather not tell. <laughs> um, and the whole premise of the book is that uh, we often write histories um, as if we were not there, you know, they're written in this third person sort of omniscient voice. And, um, we often, uh, don't go to the places or talk to the people, um, in the places where we, which we write about. And I, and I think that's a real mistake. I mean, even if you write about older periods, it's possible to go and find, um, the story in the land itself and, uh, the architectural record left behind, in the way of life of the people who, who are still there. And so this book being there is about, um, it's sort of a, a show, not tell kind of history about um, the misadventures I've had when I've gone to the place. And um, in one case, for instance, in, in Ukraine, I went to Uman because every year uh, at um, the, the Jewish new year, um, Bratslaver, Hasidic Jews gather from all around the world. There are about 10,000 of them, and they celebrate the new year with their, their leader who died in the 17th century. And I thought if I went there, I could get a sense of what it was like in these Ukrainian shtetls before the Holocaust, yeah. when they were populated with, with six, 30 to 60% Jews. And so I went, and I wanted to, to watch and, and listen and, and, and see what was going on. But I had one big problem, which was, uh, all the 10,000 tourists who were there, the, the, the people, the worshipers who were there, were all men. Mm. And that they were not to look on women during the holy celebration. And so they started to shoo me away and, and <laughs> push me away. And I was like, ah, oh, I can't get this story. And so I went back to this older woman where I was staying, this friend is my friend's mom. And she said, well, dress up as a boy and go back. And um, I thought I couldn't do that. That's disrespectful. But I did go at night and I climbed a tree and I was watching everything and listening, taking notes. And um, suddenly these, somebody yanks my leg and pulls me down out of the tree. And it's, it's these two Ukrainian cops oh. start cursing me out for being there. And don't I know I'm not supposed to be there? And if these guys catch me, they're going to beat me up. And, and they're giving me a real talking to. And then one of them says, who are you anyway? Some kind of journalist. And I say, yeah, kind of. And then they say, where are you from? And I, and I say, I'm from the United States. And then they were my friends. They started, well, I'm Yuri, and this is Sasha. And, and one of them runs and gets a Ukrainian cop's uniform and dresses me as a very short Ukrainian cop with a bad tailor. And the hat's going through my eyes, and the coat's way too long for my arms. And then they, they, are, they themselves are so impressed with, these, um, uh, with what was going on inside the temple, inside the synagogue, that they wanted me to see it. And they take me all around um, that night to show me this place. And so that's one of my misadventures I had that, um, you know, it's, it's not terribly scientific. 
it's it's extremely anecdotal, but it gave me a great deal of insight into a lot of things about both contemporary Ukraine and Ukraine before the Holocaust. And so, um, my I guess my my sense is, and one of the reasons I'm writing this book is that now that journalists are out of jobs and the, and the field of journalism is is in such dire straits, I feel like historians need to step in. Mm. All those stories that journalists have been so good at uncovering. And to do that, we need to find a new, um, more engaged literary voice that engages a broader populace and that speaks to not just issues of the past, but contemporary concerns as well. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that I've most appreciated about your work. That's one of the things that I've appreciated about reading Plutopia is the way that I, you know, I sense your presence, not only in the text, but in the story and the sensitivity that you have towards the people with whom you're you're dealing, you know, the people whose stories you're trying to tell. There's a, it's not just a, there's a wonderful ethnographic flavor to your books, but I think also a kind of, uh, there's a warmth in the way that you, you know, that you feel the story and that you're, and that you, and that you feel like you're trying to, or my impression is that you are trying to, um, that you find people's stories important and interesting and you want other people to know about them. And I think a lot of times for historians, you know, I agree with you. There's a kind of, there's this distant omniscient voice in our writing that doesn't permit that, those kind of connections uh, with our, with our subjects. And so I, I'm, I like what you're saying. And I think lots of historians will want to read your adventurous book, (laughs) your adventurous book of essays. That is. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. Uh, yeah, my biggest concern is that, you know, we, we are trying to make all these truth claims, but we have one big lie often <laughs> in our histories. And that's the, the claim that we're not really there when yeah. we're doing our research, when in fact, we're very much there and we're influencing the kinds of stories we tell. Yeah, absolutely. I th- I, that's wonderful. Thank you very much. Listen, we've taken up a lot of your time. We've enjoyed, I've enjoyed talking with you enormously. We've been speaking with Kate Brown again uh, and talking about her really exciting and and uh and i have to say just Im- incredibly impressive work on so many different levels it's called plutopia nuclear families atomic cities and the great soviet and american plutonium disasters and you're thinking to yourself gentle listener which plutonium disasters but now you know and uh and i think lots of other people will know too uh, as a result of this book so kate brown thanks so much for your time and 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 we'll say goodbye now Okay, thank you, Monica, very much.